There we go. All right. Good. I will say this about Houston traffic. It will certainly improve your prayer life. <laughs> I, uh, I'm a little bit shaky this morning, so just uh, bear with me. I went, took my dog to the vet the other day. Uh, beautiful Newfoundland, and they asked me how I was doing when I walked in, the gal behind the counter, and I looked at her and said, well, if I was a horse, they'd shoot me. And she gave me this icy stare, and she said, we don't do that anymore, (laughs) sir. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't know if they have any humor injections back there, but you need a dose. All right, well, our topic this morning is, what is spiritual maturity? We saw yesterday that the average Christian in the pew, and unfortunately, the average clergyman cannot define spiritual maturity, and you don't know how to reach the goal until you know what the goal is. And so we're going to, I hope you have your Bibles well-oiled and lubed today, because we're going to be using it a great deal to find out what the Word of God has to say, and we'll begin in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Beginning reading in chapter 5, verse 11, we have much to say about this. He's been talking about Christ being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you have become slow to learn. In fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now, this passage introduces three important contrasts that we need to recognize when we talk about spiritual maturity. First, between teachers and those who need to be taught milk and meat and the infant and the mature. And to get a complete picture of what spiritual maturity is, we have to consider these three contrasts and then draw the appropriate conclusions. So let's start by talking about teachers and students. One of the primary considerations of the mature saint is that he is able to teach and no longer needs to be taught. Now we have to clearly understand what that statement does and does not mean. It doesn't mean the mature believer knows everything about the Bible, that he doesn't need to study, that he can't be stumped in jeopardy in the Bible category. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean is that he's able to read the Bible and understand the practical implication of scripture without help from others. The practical implications. How does it apply to my life? That's what we're talking about now. We might say the mature believer is able to feed himself. In contrast, the immature person cannot understand the practical ramification of the Bible without help from others. I'm going to a meeting tonight where there's, uh, praise God, it's not at my church, but uh, where there's considerable uh, strife and uh, discord. I'm going to try and pour some oil on the troubled waters. 
And, um, you know, as a believer, we should know that whenever the Lord's servant quarrels, he's wrong by definition. Paul talked about Iodia uh, and Syntyche, or as I've heard them called, Odious and Suntachi. And um, he said that they were to agree with one another in the Lord. He didn't care who was right or wrong. They needed to agree. It's the kind of practical application that we're talking about now. Now, not only can the mature man feed himself, he can feed other words. In other words, he's able to accurately articulate what he knows so that others may benefit. When I taught in a Bible college, I used to drive my students absolutely crazy at this point. I would ask for a definition of a word or the meaning of a sentence, and inevitably someone who, after flailing around about a minute or two, would answer in frustration, oh, I know what it means, but I just can't put it into words. And I would respond, if you can't put it into words, you don't know what it means. And then here's where you insert the heavy eye rolling and the sighs as they sit down. Now, despite my frustrated students to the contrary, true understanding includes the ability to communicate that understanding to another. If you can't put it accurately into words, you do not understand it. Now, of course, the ability to teach others presupposes that you yourself have attained a certain level of knowledge. The mature believer is not ignorant about the Bible, quite the opposite. He is the student of the word because the primary means that God has chose to reveal himself is through the word. It is through words taught by the Spirit expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, that God teaches us. And these words, these spiritual words expressing spiritual truths are found in the Bible. Therefore, the mature believer knows the Bible well enough to apply it to his own life and to teach its truths to others. Now, we need to be very, very quick here to say that merely knowing the Bible is not maturity. How many times have we been... In churches, and we've seen people who have notebooks filled with sermon notes and outlines and this and that, and they are the most quarrelsome and disagreeable people you could ever meet, that there's always some drama going on in their life, okay? That's not maturity. However, it is a building block to maturity. It is one of the necessary components in order to be mature. You must know the Bible. And, of course, that takes time, doesn't it? All right, second contrast is between meat and milk. And this is a distinction that is commonly misunderstood. We tend to think of some doctrines like the Trinity or the relationship between the biblical covenants or Bible prophecy as meat doctrines. And other doctrines are milk doctrines. You know, they're easier like salvation and prayer. Therefore, if you're only interested in simple doctrines like salvation, you're living on milk. But when you get into the intricacies of Bible prophecy, then you're really feasting on meat. That is totally incorrect. The difference between meat and milk is not what doctrine we're talking about, but rather the depth that you can go into that doctrine and accept the truths that God has revealed. That's important. Sure, there's some milk elements to salvation. If that weren't so, there'd be no nourishment for the newborn believer. But there's milk elements to Bible prophecy as well. 
The fact that Jesus is coming again bodily is a fact that is within reach of the newest Christian. In the same way, there's meat elements to salvation, such as election or propitiation. The doctrine of future things contains meat as well. For instance, Daniel's 70th week or the meaning of the rituals and sacrifices in the millennial temple. We have to get rid of this idea that some doctrines by themselves only belong to babies and others belong to the mature. With regard to spiritual maturity, it's the depths that you can reach into these doctrines, not the doctrines themselves that are the issue. The mature believer will venture beyond a mere surface understanding and delve deep into God's word, understanding those things that are more difficult to understand or accept. Now, I I throw that in there because sometimes... You know, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither are our thoughts are not God's thoughts. Neither are his ways our ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so higher is his thoughts above our thoughts. So sometimes God reveals things that run absolutely contrary to the human mind. And it takes faith, it takes maturity to accept as true these things that God has revealed. I mean, you can understand the points that are being made. You can understand the the argument. You just can't accept it as true. It just can't be. The mature believer can accept those things that God has revealed, even those things that run contrary to the human mind. Well, the third contrast is between the infant and the mature. And in this passage, the infant is described as someone who is not acquainted with teaching about righteousness, verse 13. What am I stepping on? Okay, it wasn't my pants, it was the cord. Okay, I keep wiggling up here and then nothing was moving. All right. The original language, meaning not acquainted, uses a word meaning unskilled or without experience. Uh, I have um, my son, middle son, is a youth pastor, and there were some problems in the church. and he came to live with us, and now the house that we purchased for two now has seven in it. <laughs> yes, we have our three, three of our six grandchildren living with us, all of them under the age of four. <laughs> and it is a blessing and a curse. <laughs> Mostly a blessing, I will say that, okay. But I've got to see firsthand what it means to be unskilled, without experience. My grandchildren are without experience in so many things. So the spiritual infant is without experience, listen, in what it means to be righteous. In other words, the infant doesn't understand in practical terms what it means to live righteously day to day. Now, this goes beyond the fact that none of us consistently live up to what we already know. Instead, this is speaking about a limitation in actual understanding. In real life situations, what does righteousness look like? And now here's a problem when it comes to maturity because everybody thinks they know the difference between right and wrong. The unsaved person does, the believer does, everybody does. They think they know what right and wrong look like, but until we get right and wrong revealed to us from on high, we cannot know what right and wrong looks like. 
And so the infant does not know, from God's perspective, in practical terms, what righteousness is. It's a limitation. The primary difference between the infant and mature is their ability to distinguish in practical terms what is right and wrong in a given situation. So let's get a definition then of spiritual maturity. And I've worked hard to try and pare this down as much as I can, and I I can't pare it down any more than this. And I, I want you to know I really struggled on this, so if it's complicated, it's the best I could do. The spiritually mature are those who through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's important, important part of the definition. The spiritually mature are those who through the power of the Holy Spirit understand God's word well enough and have consistently put its truths into practice long enough that they are capable of distinguishing good from evil in practical circumstances and are competent in teaching others to do the same. The spiritually mature are those who through the power of the Holy Spirit understand God's word well enough and have consistently put its truths into practice long enough that they are capable of distinguishing good and evil in practical circumstances and are competent in teaching others to do the same. Now please notice there's no element of becoming one with God or the unio mystica that we talked about yesterday in this biblically derived definition. Also notice there's no promise of sinless perfection in this definition. The mature believer still sins. Although I can say the mature believer does not remain in his sin for an extended period of time. He's quick to confess his sin and be restored to fellowship. His life is characterized for the most part as being filled by the spirit, not controlled by the flesh. Now, the problem is, as I've said before, while some people readily admit they don't know the right thing to do in a given situation, most people think they know the difference between good and evil. Regardless of a person's spiritual condition, each man takes the information he has and makes judgments about what is right and wrong in a given situation. Now, of course, sometimes we choose to do what is wrong. Often we protest that even though we may choose to do wrong, the fact that we know that it's wrong shows that we're able to distinguish between right and wrong. Yet this clearly isn't the case. As we'll see, the source of our information on which a person relies when making choices that require distinguishing good from evil indicates the maturity level of that person. In other words, every person takes the information available and determines what is right and wrong. The difference is, what information are you using to determine what's right and wrong? Well, to better understand spiritual maturity, we have to move on to the threefold classification that the Bible makes regarding mankind. Now, there's a lot of ways to define, to divide mankind and categorize. You can divide them into men and women, and you'll notice that I stopped there. Just saying. Boy, I want to go off on a rant right now. No, get thee behind me, Satan. (laughs) Or we could uh, define people into saved and lost. I remember hearing Vance Havner long ago 
in my youth talk about when the the Titanic went down in Western Union stations all over the United States, there were two lists that were posted. There was the saved and the lost. And there was no third category. Okay? We can divide it that way. But when it comes to spiritual maturity, we're actually going to divide mankind into three categories. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Robbie, what time am I supposed to open up for questions? If you don't tell me, I'm just going to go by the calendar. (laughs) Okay. All righty. Now I have a goal to ignore. Okay. (laughs) Well, let's see. Do I have time? I think I have time. Let's start with verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Verse 6, we do, however... Speak a message of wisdom among the mature. There's our word. But not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom. A wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen No ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Verse 11, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him in the same way? No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit, or the natural man, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as carnal. If you were reading from the NIV, the word worldly, there is terrible translation need to line that out and put in the word carnal. means fleshy. I could not address you as spiritual, but as fleshy, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still fleshy. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not fleshy? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apostle, are you not mere men? 
Now, you'll notice in this passage, we're talking about the wisdom that God has hidden from the world. We're talking about a wisdom among the mature, and we have three types of people. And the difference between these three types of people is the relationship of the spirit to that individual. In other words, that person's relationship to the spirit is the deciding factor. And you'll see that we had three types of people. Let's name them. There is the natural man. There is the carnal man. And there is the spiritual man. And that's the head we want to put on. Okay. So let's look at each one of these in turn. Let's look at the natural man. The natural man is is described in verse 14 as the man without the spirit. This man does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. They're foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, when it says that they're foolishness, it doesn't when it says that he can't understand them. It doesn't mean that when you start talking to the unsaved about the things of God, that suddenly they lose the ability to understand English, that they no longer grasp grammar and syntax. And all of a sudden it's gibberish and they can't understand it. When I go to Africa, I go to Africa every year to teach the pastors in um, uh, Central Africa and Swahili speaking. And I know enough Swahili to ask questions, but not enough to understand the answers, okay? So when I ask a question and they start jabbering at me, I just uh, nod my head and try and pick up 10% of the words that they're using to figure out what they're talking about. I cannot understand them because I can't understand the language. It's not what's being talked about here. They cannot understand means they cannot accept the things that come. They understand the argument. They just don't accept it as true. That's the problem. I remember when I was in my PhD program, the seminary bought this big, long wall of books, like back wall here, just top to bottom with books. Um, that's very prestigious, I'm sure, and they paid, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars for these books. And they uh, were on the ancient Near East, and we were told that we had to go down and find an article and read something in it because they just spent all this money on these books. That was the main justification that I heard, anyway. So I found the section on, you know, that was around the time period of the New Testament, and then I sorted through the ones that were in German and the ones that were in French and the ones that were in Latin, and I finally came to one that was in English, and I started reading it. And when you're in a PhD program, you read every crackpot out there, okay? I want you to understand that. Andy, am I telling the truth? Okay. You read all, you know, if there is a heretic out there, you're going to read him because as a PhD, you should know this. Anyway... I'm sorry, did I just roll my eyes? That was completely... So, so I'm reading this, and, and this, this guy is explaining the gospel. And he is doing a brilliant job. And my heart is warmed because of the way he's doing it. He's doing a much better job explaining justification by faith, the forensic justification that comes from uh, God giving us his righteousness. And I'm reading and I'm reading and then I turn the page and at the top of the next page it says, now this is what people used to believe. And he wiped it all off the table. E.P. Sanders, Andy, is who I was reading. Well, he understood. He just didn't accept as true. That's the problem. You can give the gospel to the natural man. He'll understand it. 
He just won't believe it to be true. And he won't believe it to be true because he will not have the mind of God. To understand the mind of God, you have to share the mind of God. He doesn't share the mind of God. Now, I want you to notice in this passage, and I'm not talking about any other, just this passage. In this passage, the natural man is not blamed for his inability. His inability is merely stated as a fact. And it stems from his lack of having the spirit. That's the problem. That's why we shouldn't accept advice from the unsaved. Remember what it says in Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight, notice the contrast, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. I can't count the number of times I've had some Christian woman go to work and she is having troubles at home and she has some person that she works with who's been divorced three or four times saying, well, I don't know why you put up with that. I sure didn't put up with that from old Joe, you know. And somebody has failed in their marriage giving advice on how you should succeed and, you're on a, and I just want to look at them and go, stop that. You, you should not take advice because they will never, ever ever know right from wrong, ever, because they don't have the Spirit. Now, the reason that that is so important is because of the source of their, of their knowledge. They rely on their five senses and their reason. Look at verse 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. There's our five senses. No mind has conceived. The only thing that the natural man has is his five senses and his reason. And you will never come to a knowledge of God through your five senses and your reason. There is a total inability to know the mind of God. Therefore, the natural man will never know right from wrong, never know good from evil. Let me give you a practical view of what that looks like. Let's suppose... um, Safe person and unsafe person are walking by a house and the house is on fire and some woman is crying out, help, somebody help me, my baby's in the house. So the two men look at one another and they know what they need to do. They take some handkerchiefs from their pockets, they cover up their mouth and their nose, they run in, they brave the flames and together they rescue the baby and they come out and, and the child is safe. And then the news media ri- arrives on the, on the scene. And they interview them. And first they interview the unsafe person. Tell me, you're a hero, sir. Why did you do it? And he says, well, you know, I believe children are our future. And I think that there's nothing more important than children. And so whatever we need to do to sacrifice, you know, to protect children, I think is what we should do because they're our future. Well, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? It's totally wrong. Now you give it to the saved person. What does he say? You know, Christ sacrificed for me. He was willing to give his life for the helpless. And if I'm going to be like him, I need to do the same thing because he loves this child just like he loves all people. Now, they both did exactly the same thing. One did it from a merely humanistic reason. Children are our future. No, they're not. Aren't you glad the future is not in the hands of children? They both did exactly the same thing. 
but one did it from a naturalistic explanation derived from their five senses and their reason. Another did it because of revelation from God. One person was right, one person was wrong, even though they did the same thing. The natural man will never, ever, ever, never, did I say never? Never come to an accurate understanding of right from wrong, good from evil. Well, let's go on. The carnal man. The carnal man we see in chapter 3, this person has the spirit. We see that they're infants in Christ. And when a person is Christ, they have the spirit of God. But they are carnal, which means fleshy. When When you order chili con carne, you have chili with meat, right? Or the incarnation is when God took on meat. He took on flesh. And so carnal simply means fleshy. Now, it's important to notice that everybody begins carnal. We had, uh, when our children moved down here, they came down with two and then another was added rapidly and we had a newborn in the house for the first time in (coughs) 30 some odd years. And um, you don't get a lot of sleep with a newborn. But you know, it didn't occur to any of us to go in and spank the child when, when he cried. Why? Because that's what babies do. Babies cry when they're tired. Babies cry when they're hungry. Babies cry when they're wet. Babies cry when they're bored. Babies cry when they're happy. Babies cry. This is just what they do. Do we blame them for it? No, we don't blame them for it. We don't say, shut up, you cry, baby. We don't do that. Now, if I had a 13-year-old acting like a newborn, that would be something different. But everybody starts out carnal. Therefore, carnal is not the same as sinful. Carnal is not the same as sinful. Carnal merely means fleshy. It means being an infant. Now, the reason they are fleshy is because the carnal person still relies primarily on their five senses and their reason to determine what is right and wrong. In other words, they still have the spirit. They have an extra source of information that the natural man does not have. And that fact alone places the position of the carnal believer infinitely above that of the natural man because he has access to knowledge that the natural man does not have. He has access to the mind of God. But because they've spent their entire life relying on their five senses and their reason, that's basically... Uh, what they rely on to make their decisions. That's why it says in chapter 3, I gave you milk, not solid food, for not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still fleshly, for there is jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not fleshy? Are you not acting like mere men? See, there's the problem. They act like mere men because their source of information is the same as mere men. That's the problem. Carnality, by the way, only becomes sinful when someone stays carnal. Oh, let's get a poem. Old Father William. You are old, Father William, the young man said, and your hair has become very white, and yet you incessantly stand on your head. Do you think at your age it is right? In my youth, Father William replied to his son, I feared it might injure the brain, but now that I'm perfectly sure I have none, I do it again and again. The problem is... 
when you have someone who is old, old Father William, acting like a child. You know, it's time to grow up. I've often wondered what we'd look like if one Sunday God let his sense of humor run rampant and suddenly we were all dressed according to our spiritual age. That's an embarrassing thought, isn't it? How many of us would be wandering around in diapers, I wonder? With a rattle, that's right. And then how many of us would be in short pants? How many of us would be dressed as we are now? How would you be dressed? That's an important question, isn't it? Now, we need to recognize that carnal can be spiritual. Remember I said yesterday that being a Christian means being rightly related to Christ. Being spiritual means being rightly related to the Spirit. So from the moment of the new birth, a believer may be walking in the Spirit. And so it's possible to be spiritual and carnal at the same time. And it is by walking in the Spirit, I should add, that by logging hours walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, that we move beyond carnality into maturity. If you want to know how to become mature, here's the simplest way. Log hours being filled with the Spirit. When you start logging hours being filled with the Spirit is when you begin to move into maturity. Okay? Now, let's look at the third definition, and that is the spiritual man. We see him in verse 15 of chapter 2. The spiritual man makes judgment about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who knows the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, notice the spiritual man relies on the spirit for his knowledge of right and wrong and good and evil. My father was born again in 1960 when I was two years old. By the time of his death in 1996, he was the most thoroughly converted individual I believe I've ever met. And there was a big, big change that took place between 1960 and 1996. He never finished the eighth grade. He was raised in the Great Depression in the hills of Tennessee. Never had glasses till he went in the Navy. And so he couldn't really read. And so he, he just had to drop out of school. And when he read his Bible, he read slowly and he could only read for a certain amount of time. And then his eyes would begin to tear up because of all those years without glasses. And yet he'd watch him, and by this time I'm going to seminary, and I would go to visit him. And there'd be somebody on TV, and he'd be watching them. And I'd be knowing the arguments that that they were using, because I've had a little bit more education, a little bit more experience than these. But my dad, he didn't know any of these people. He read people like, you know, simple people, like H.A. Ironside, Warren Wearsby. Okay, simple, easy to get at. And he'd sit there and then he'd look and then he'd frown and then he'd fold his arms and then he'd go, that's not right. I don't know why that's not right, but that's not right. And I was amazed at his insight because he'd be correct. I never saw him call it wrong, ever. It was absolutely amazing. 
He didn't have the education. He didn't have the background. And yet he was able to distinguish right and wrong in practical situations. Why? Because he had the mind of Christ. That's why. And he had the ability to teach others. The ability to teach others. In other words, when you go to your church and there's somebody that says, you know, I've got this problem at work or I've got this problem at home or thus and so is going on, are you able to go to the Word of God and say, let me tell you how to handle that. Let me tell you how to avoid strife. Let me just give you one practical example. Okay, let's turn to 1 Timothy. Excuse me, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 24. This is the quickest way I know, this is the quickest rule of thumb I know to see how mature a person is. Chapter 2, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone. Able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Notice the Lord's servant must not quarrel. So men and women, whenever we quarrel, we are wrong by definition. We have to be kind to everyone, not just those who agree with us, not just those that we like, not just those that look like us, not just those that speak our language. We have to be kind to everyone. Let me tell you one of the incontrovertible facts of life. If you go to a restaurant with somebody and they're mean to the waitress, they are not a nice person no matter how they're treating you at the moment. You can take that to the bank. Okay? If you're walking down Houston and you see a transgendered person come up to you, you are to be kind to them because you are to be kind to everyone, right? Hmm. We can't be resentful. How many times have we looked back at the things that have happened to us in church and the resentment just builds and the bitterness makes it all fresh? And that can go on for a long time. Something happened to me just um, about two weeks ago. I got an email from somebody I haven't talked to in over... Goodness, how long has it been? 40 years. In high school, one of my good friends we were running around with got together with some of my other friends and they played the meanest practical joke on me that you could possibly imagine. And I immediately after that just had nothing more to do with them. Then out of the blue, this person writes me and says, you know, this has always bothered me and I want you to forgive me. Well, how do you handle that? Because it was all right there again. I've got to tell you, for two days I didn't respond. I really struggled with that. But you can't be resentful. You've got to forgive, right? It's not a choice. It's these kind of practical right and wrong situations that determine whether or not you're spiritually mature or not. Let me give you another rule of thumb. If the average person on the street tells you you're doing the right thing, almost certainly you're not. Okay? All right. So, let's just sum it up. Being a Christian is being rightly related to Christ. 
being spiritual is being rightly related to the spirit. And I'm finished a little early. I didn't uh, plan this out as well as yesterday, so that's fine, though. We'll take some questions at this point. Yesterday, you would have been amazed, Robbie. I finished right on the button where I was supposed to. I'm dealing with great. Well, you know, they've never hung a preacher for, for ending early, okay? That's one of those things that I've, I've discovered in my life. Yes, sir. In your uh, statement that you believe a person can be both carnal and spiritual, mm-hmm. in uh, Galatians 5, 18, 19, mm-hmm. you have a significant Greek construction there. Mm-hmm. Walk by the Spirit and... You will not fulfill the yeah, lust of the flesh. Ume plus a subjunctive. Yeah, strongest way to say no. Right. Okay. which, uh, according to Pentecost and a number of others, that means it's either one or the other. Absolutely. Okay, so you can't be carnal. No, no, wait a minute. Now, hang on. Okay. We have to define our terms. Okay. okay? You, can't you, can act... according, you can't be walking according to the flesh and the spirit at the same time. Right, but walking according to the flesh is not the way I'm using the word carnal. Okay. Okay. When you're walking according to the flesh, no doubt about it, that's sinful. By the way, as long as we're here, for uh, the acts of the sinful nature, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, wow, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Okay? That's the natural man. Now, and when, the like is the Greek way of saying etc. 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 Yeah, as the King of Siam would say. Yes, etc. etc. The walking in the flesh is always sinful. That's not the way I'm using the word cardinal in this conversation. In this conversation, I'm talking about the spiritual state of a person. There is a, someone who is a spiritual infant, and then someone who needs to grow into maturity. Everybody starts as an infant. Okay? The newborn believer is an infant. They need milk. They don't need solid food. They need to grow. But there's nothing wrong with being an infant when you're an infant. Okay? So I'm using carnal in the same idea as of being an infant. Okay? They are fleshy. The reason they are fleshy is they get their information from their five senses and their reason and they need to be taught to walk in the spirit. Right. Do you, are you drawing a distinction between sarkikos and sarkanos? Or do you go with the majority text that it's both the same there? I don't think I'm prepared to answer that question right at the moment. Okay. okay. I mean, I've heard the arguments on both sides. Um, I tend to draw a distinction, but I'm not going to take a paper cut on that hill, let alone die on it. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, in, in, in that verse when it talks about your spiritual infants, mm-hmm. Have you have you looked at the nuances for napios there? No. Okay. What I I'm would, a simple man. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'm very very simple. What you know? I, I what I would say is napios is an interesting word because it has a denotative and connotative meaning, mm-hmm. and and I always get those confused. I can never remember which is which. But the literal meaning is is can be a baby, mm-hmm. but it's also has a connotation of. You're just a whiny baby. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're an adult, but you're acting like a child. 
And that's true, though, isn't it? I mean, yeah. when, you, when, you, when you have someone who's born again, right? When you have somebody who's freshly born again, they are a lot of trouble. If you get people, if you have a lot of evangelism going on in your church, you have, by definition, trouble because you have a nursery full of crying babies. So they're like Mrs. Pedicaris? Who's Mrs. Pedicaris? Did you see the lion, the wind and the lion with uh, Sean Connery? No, I'm a Christian. And the American... (laughs) (laughs) She's the American woman that that gets kidnapped and, and Teddy Roosevelt had to send the Marines in after... And she's kidnapped by Sean Connery, and she's always very independent. He keeps saying, you're just a lot of trouble, Mrs. Pettikaris. That was a fascinating illustration, seriously. So, All right, so. But that's how, that's how babies are. <laughs> that's how babies are. But that is how babies See, are. See, I was testing your knowledge of contemporary uh, culture. Contemporary yes. culture, and I failed. Um, the problem is when you have evangelism going on, you've got a problem. You've got a church full of problems because they act like the natural man. Because they get their information from the natural man. Now, the, or excuse me, they get their information from the same place the natural man gets his information. Now, the good thing is they also have an extra source of information, and that is the mind of Christ uh, given to us by God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us. So therefore, we need to train them to rely more on the Spirit and less on their five senses and their reason. Okay, so we need to get them to grow up in Christ. My only point is being a baby is nothing. I'd rather have somebody be a baby than lost. Being a baby is not sinful. Staying a baby is sinful. Acting like a baby is sinful. But being a baby is not. You see the distinction I'm making? Is there a corollary there that if you're a pastor and you leave your congregation as babies, it is Sinful? Yes. Yes, I would say so. Okay. You know, that we are to, we are to, you know, well, in Ephesians, you know, the pastor has been told what he needs to do, right? It was some he gave to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. I believe that's the same person there, not because of uh, uh, Granville Sharp Sorry, doesn't apply here, but because of the Mende construction. To prepare God's people, here's what the pastor teacher is supposed to do, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Is that, is that in the Living Bible? Hmm? <laughs> I'm not going to take this from you now. <laughs> I'm just letting you know. You know, every, every, every Bible that I've ever picked up has to be corrected at some point or another. Okay, so I'm, I just, I'm, just, I'm just having fun with you. Yes, you, know? you yes, have a that's great fine. sense of humor, and we okay. can have a little fun here on some of these things because I, we, 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 and we, I we love you things, too, Robbie. We view things similarly. So. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> okay, anybody have any questions? All right, Dan will. Um, how do you integrate uh, James three two? into your definition of maturity. Uh, the one who can bridle his tongue, he is a, uh, well, new mature King James man. is perfect, but mature man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, um, in the context of James, we have to look at maturity. Now, remember, you know, in, in our biblical theology, I've been in Paul, now we're going to a different person at a different different time. In James, we see the definition of maturity in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. 
Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given him. So in this case, maturity is talking about the completeness of the individual. Okay, And part of that completeness is the ability to govern your tongue. Okay? In fact, uh, James mentions the tongue in all four chapters of his book. The, the most extensive exposition on the use of the tongue that we have is in James 3. All right? So the mature person is able to bridle their tongue, although not completely, which shows maturity does not mean sinfulness. Because if you're able to keep your tongue, you're able to control the whole body and you're sinless, right? So I would say that it's a similar concept. It's not exactly the same, but it's a similar concept. It's talking about, you know, when it talks about completeness here or um, um, you, you have to be complete, it's talking about reaching the goal that is desired, okay? That's what the, the idea is, reaching the finish line, reaching the point that God wants you to reach, okay? That's what it's more talking about in James, but it's not in opposition or in competition with Paul at this point. You know, justification in James and Paul are different, but here maturity, there's considerable overlap between James and Paul. Did I answer your question? No? Give me another shot at it, brother. Let me take another run. I'm just trying to understand a subtle distinction you're making between uh, maturity in James and maturity in the book of Hebrews. What's the difference between the two? In in Hebrews, um, it's defined as... Uh, who through constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. So maturity is defined as the ability to distinguish between good and evil. James is talking about maturity, and he's saying if you're mature, that you're going to be able to govern your tongue. That's a different statement. Okay, The governing of the tongue is an example of what happens when you're a mature person. You can distinguish between good and evil in what you say. So, so in Hebrews, you have a more complete uh, all-encompassing um, definition of maturity, the ability to distinguish between good and evil. In James, he's taking that idea. I don't know if he's taking that idea or not. That's not correct. But that idea is the same, only he's narrowing it down and saying, let's look at the tongue. Okay? Does that make more sense? I still didn't, didn't get it, did I? I'm, I'm giving it my best shot, brother. <laughs> Pastor Baker. Yes, sir. You, you gave us the three categories. Yes, sir. The natural man, the carnal man, and the spiritual man. Mm-hmm. And on the slide, for the carnal man, one of the points you had up there was, has the Spirit of God. Mm-hmm. So are you saying there that the carnal man can only refer to the believer? Yes, the carnal person is only the believer. They are the infant in Christ. And here's what we need to recognize. They have the spirit, but when they make decisions about right and wrong, their default is their five senses and their reason. Okay? That's their default. And so they tend to act more like the world than like a Christian. Okay, does that make sense to you? I understand what you're saying, sir. Okay. Have you seen the word carnal used differently? I'm just asking. I'm just trying to figure out if I answered your question or not. Well, I, I, you know, I don't know if we're, I, I don't know if we're, if we're using the word 
carnal, if carnal means fleshy or fleshly, mm-hmm. then then I understand that that refers to a a believer that's not filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, it's not well. Not walking not by the walk, Spirit. Not, See, there's two ways that you can look at this, and, and so this is why we have to define our terms. Uh, what Robbie and I were talking about earlier, you know, 90% of theology is definition. You are fleshy when you're not walking in the Spirit. That's absolutely true. But I'm talking about what would categorize your life as a whole, not at the moment. Are you an infant in Christ or have you moved on to maturity? At what stage of Christian growth are you at, not what are you walking at at this particular moment? Yeah, but at some point you're either, you're either walking in the light or you're walking in darkness, right? That's true. If you're, if you're not walking by means of the Spirit, then you're carnal. You can say that, okay, but, uh, but not in the way that I'm defining the term for this conversation. Okay, it's it's one thing to say, let me try it like this. It's one thing to say, my grandson Elijah is a baby. It's another thing to say, you're acting like a baby. One is a statement of growth and development. The other is how you're acting right now. I'm talking about carnality as a statement of fact, a statement of growth. Elijah is a baby. Okay. So so you're saying that a, a person is carnal if they're using their five senses and their reason to define right and wrong. Yes, sir. You're not saying a person is carnal if they're not walking by means of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's all... Look. Um, I mean, did, but did I state the question? Yes, yes. You, you said it right. The spiritual man takes um, his information from the Holy Spirit. And therefore is the most countercultural individual you'll see. But let's face it, none of us is sinless. All of us are going to be walking in the flesh sometime or another, but that doesn't mean that they stop being a spiritual man as far as their development of growth. They confess their sin and they move on. Let me give you an example. When I was in the Navy, I started playing racquetball, and I was abysmal. And I moved my way through constant training, constant use. I moved my way up from truly awful to mediocre, okay? And uh, the difference between me and a good racquetball player was not that I never made good shots, because I did sometimes. And it wasn't that the good players never made bad shots, because they did sometimes. It was how consistently did they make the good shots and how consistently did I make the good shots. So did I make a good shot? Well, at that moment, I was a good player. Well, I guess if you want to say that. But it really wasn't. It was the amount of time that I could make those good shots compared to them. Okay? So we're talking about a continuum of development here. Yes, you're carnal whenever you're walking in the flesh because you are, by definition, fleshly at that moment. But that doesn't necessarily have to characterize your life. Okay? You can be a spiritual person where your life is characterized by walking in the Spirit, even though there are momentary lapses. Okay? I hope that answered the question anyway. Anybody else have any questions? One over here. It seems to me that um, there are some things that are given to us in Scripture uh, that are things that unbelievers might even 
uh, recognize, such as some of the divine institutions. For example, there's unbelievers who do recognize the sanctity of marriage, for example, not because it's been revealed to them necessarily, you know, from God, but they look at that or they might recognize the importance of the sovereignty of a nation or things of that nature which are given to us in Scripture and yet an unbeliever might still have a concept and you were saying the natural man never uh, can distinguish between right and wrong but it seems to me there are some things that God has given that an unbeliever might grasp and that I give the divine institutions as an example of something they might grasp and know right from wrong uh, but not by the power of the Spirit, if that makes sense. Well, no, I think I see what you're saying. We do have to say that there is a certain amount of right and wrong that every person knows because the law is written on their heart, as it says in Romans 2, right? So in, in every country that I've been to, and I've been to, oh, goodness, about 20 of them, 21, I've lost count, and where I've taught, they've all had, for instance, when I've arrived on, on shore, they've all, um, I've known that murder was against the law. Murder is against the law everywhere. Why? Because it's written on man's heart, okay? So they can know right and wrong in that general sense, but in the sense of what do I need to do to please God right now? What is the most? Um, what is the way that God is the most honored in my life at this moment? They will never come to the right conclusion. Now, what I mean by that is this: they might come to the right action, but they'll come to the right action for the wrong believer or for the wrong reason. The only thing that the unbeliever can do is choose between greater and lesser evil. They will never come to right because they will never presuppose God in their thinking. There will always be a naturalistic thing. For instance, you know, if, if, if somebody asked me, is marriage a good thing? I'd say, sure. Why? I'd say, well, because God created it, created it for mankind. Other people might say, well, you know, married men live longer. And, and they do. If you could bottle marriage and put it in a pill, you'd make a gazillion dollars. Because married men live longer, they have less diseases, they lead happier lives, they have less instances of suicide and mental depression, and they're more socially engaged, and on and on, they're cleaner. Um, you know, on, on and on it goes, all right? Come on, let's face it, guys. If it wasn't for the ladies in our lives, we'd be bears in caves, okay? Let's just, let's just call it the way it is, all right? So there's all these things that are the benefit of marriage, okay? And those are all really, really good. But the reason marriage is good is because God created marriage. If somebody asked me why um, murder is wrong, well, murder is wrong because it destroys families, because it tears down the fabric of society, it's bad for the economy, blah, blah, blah. No, marriage is wrong because it's an assault against God by proxy, because whenever you kill somebody, you're killing someone who is created in the image of God. That's why. And if you come to any other conclusion about why murder is wrong, you're wrong, even though you agree with me that marriage is, or that uh, murder is wrong. You see? So you can come to the same conclusion, just come to it from the wrong reason. Okay? Simply put, you believe the right thing for the wrong reason. Yeah. And that's the unbeliever. Yes. Well, sometimes that's the unbeliever. Many times. He believes Rarely. the right thing for the, it's right, but it's his rationale, his presupposition. So when you look at a tree, and the unbeliever looks at a tree. Whatever you may agree on about the tree, fundamentally you're not looking at the same tree because his tree got there by time plus chance plus accident, and your tree got there from the hand of God. You know, it's interesting you say that because <clears throat> I look at that, uh, look at science and look at psychological testing. There's some psychological testing that I use sometimes in counseling. And I think it's because that psychologists and psychiatrists and, and so forth, they can look at things and they can observe and they can write down what they have observed. 
I think that's valuable. What I don't buy is when they try and interpret the data. Okay? Um, I can look at, um, um, you know, George Barna. I'm not saying he's not a believer now, but I, I don't necessarily agree with George Barna's approach to Christian growth and this, that, and the other. But I'll still use Barna's data because he can look and describe what actually is. It's when he starts to interpret the data that I get off base with him. Okay? So the unbeliever can look at things and determine, you know, how to send, you know, a rocket into space and so forth, how to, how to land, a, you know, something on a comet and all these kind of things. They can do that because they can look, they observe, they can draw appropriate conclusions. They just can't interpret the data correctly. Okay? All right. Do you have another question here? Or? Uh, going back to Galatians 5 again, mm-hmm. uh, the question, I guess, to me then is, is, who do you see doing these deeds of the flesh? Are these carnal? Or are the, is this a description of the natural man? I know obviously it couldn't be a natural man because that's the deeds of the flesh, but is he referring here to... Oh, yeah, it could be the natural man because those are the deeds of the flesh and that's right. what the natural man does. But is he implying this to those that are now carnal because they're doing these things? I guess because of the contention there of not... In, you know, I know that we have the, the kingdom tension there, but inherit the kingdom of God and use this nature practicing, um, you know... But I'm, we're, I'm, we're going to look at this passage, but this passage, we, we have to understand that, that every book is written by an author for a purpose, and right. it's not always the same purpose. The purpose here in Galatians 5 is not to talk about spiritual maturity. The purpose here is to talk about walking in the flesh, walking in the spirit. That's not the same thing. Okay? So when you're in Hebrews 5, you're talking about spiritual maturity. You're talking about, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you're talking about types of people you're talking about, you know, uh, uh, categories of people. Here, we're not talking about categories of people. You're talking about how do you walk, well, but and I, that's I, different. I guess though, the question though then is, if you go to chapter six, then you that are spiritual. So he he is contrasting characteristics of people. He is using by, that those same terms, but that but he's not. Um, He's using the same terms, he's using the same concepts, but he's not giving an argument for those concepts in this passage. Here what he's saying is, if you're walking in the flesh, the deeds of the flesh are obvious, and he lays them out. You need to be walking in the spirit. But wouldn't that still fall within your reasoning that you've presented here? That Yes, it would. All I'm saying is that doesn't necessarily, momentarily walking in the flesh does not necessarily make someone carnal, okay, as far as a category. That doesn't make someone a spiritual infant because they sin, because everybody sins. But there's still people who are mature. Okay, Paul talks about we who are mature should take an attitude, take this attitude toward these things. He includes himself. Is Paul making himself sinful, sinless? No, he's not. He's, but he's still calling himself mature. So what I'm saying is there's a category of people that are characterized by walking in the flesh. They are carnal. And there's a category of people who are characterized by walking in the spirit. They are spiritual. And then you've got a continuum between them here. What he's talking about is what's it look like to walk in the flesh? What's it look like to walk in the spirit? What I'm talking about is how is your life characterized? Where do you spend the most time? Okay. Does that make sense, brother? To a point, but I... I, Okay. (laughs) Okay. I think our time is... No, we got one more. Time well, for I one saw more brother question. right back. I saw brother right back here. He had his hand up first, I think.
I hope I can say this because uh, if I can't, then it means I don't understand it. <laughs> um, I've just been hoist on my own petard. All right, go ahead. Well, I, I, I'm hearing you say on one hand that there's a kind of a there's a walk involved here where a Christian uh, at times can be. Uh, uh, living in a carnal state, and at other times, living in a spiritual state. Mm-hmm. But in, in Hebrews, where you started, it, it seems to me it wasn't talking about something that's proceeding. It's it seems like it's talking about a person who reached a state but should have gone beyond it. Well, the, both yes, both are true. That's true. Yes, because yeah. they should have. They should be able to teach. They should be teachers by this time, but they're not. They should be able to understand these things. In fact, their ability, notice, to understand spiritual truth is degraded. By this time, you ought to be teachers. We have more to talk about it. But you have become, that's the tense of the Greek, you have become slow to learn. Their ability to understand spiritual truth is degraded because of their spiritual state. Okay? Now, does that mean that that person who is degraded never walks in the spirit? No, it doesn't mean that. That means their general spiritual state is such that they can't understand. Likewise, the person that's um, mature, verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. In fact, the Greek word there is... Uh, the word from which we get our word gymnasium means you need to go into the gym. You need to practice walking in the spirit so that you can distinguish good from evil. It's talking about a quality of life now, not what are you doing at the moment. There's times I still walk in the flesh because I'm a sinful man. Okay, That's the way it is. But that doesn't characterize my life generally. Generally, I'm walking in the Spirit, or at least I certainly try to. So that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about how am I walking at this, because everybody walks in the flesh. We need to learn to walk in the Spirit more. But the more and more you practice, uh, 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 train yourself through constant use to distinguish good from evil, the more mature you become and the easier it is for you to distinguish good from evil because you've constantly been working out in the gym and now you know what good and evil looks like. Okay, that's what that was being stated here in Hebrews. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you, Dr. Baker. Uh, you mentioned that the way one becomes spiritually mature is spending a maximum amount of time walking in the spirit. Yes, sir. Would you also agree that it requires taking in the Word of God? Yes, sir. Absolutely. I think if you're walking in the Spirit, you're going to spend time in the Word of God. I really do. I, I don't see any way around it. can't have one without the other. No. You, well, yes, you can. You can have people spending a lot of time in the Word of God and still just be as fleshly as a newborn. But you can't have somebody who's mature not spending time in the Word of God. Right. Well, the point I'm making is you spend a lot of time in the Word of God, but without the Spirit, there's no growth. It's just an exercise in legalism. And if you spend a lot of time walking according to the Spirit without the Word of God, then you're mystic and you're not growing anywhere either. That's true. So I think where we're getting, where we have some some confusion here on the terms, is that uh, for many it appears that in First Corinthians two, uh, First Corinthians two and three. 
that the term spiritual contrasted to carnal, like walking by the Spirit is compared to walking by the Spirit, walking according to the flesh. These are describing your relationship to the Spirit, mm-hmm. whereas spiritual maturity is a term that relates to your time in grade. So spiritual, That's a good way to put it. spiritual immaturity is not carnal. It is, it is, um, because you can be carnal as a, you as can a be spiritual believer. and carnal at the same time. Well, no, because no, if, if you if you define spiritual as not, walking yeah, in the but spirit, we're not, see, we're not used to defining terms quite that way. So if your your if carnal is walking according to the flesh, then you can be spiritually mature and 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 carnal. Well, this is see. There's the difference in definition. Right. You know, we were talking that, about the trunk of a. That's, I, that's why I'm clarifying yeah. this. Is that if spiritual is walking by the spirit, mm-hmm. and carnal is walking according to the flesh, then you can be. Then spiritual maturity is the person who has a lot of time in grade. Mm-hmm. So the person who is, can be spiritually mature and carnal. But it can't be spiritual and carnal because you're either walking according to the flesh or you're walking according to the spirit. I'm not sure I'd agree with that statement. And the, the fly in the ointment. I there. know because of the way you're defining terms. But I think yeah. that it, it, if you, if if the we're saying the same thing, but you're defining your terms differently. I'm just I'm just equating carnality. In one sense, right. in one definition, with being an infant. Yeah, yeah. And see, if if napios is used with a denotative meaning, you're right. But if it's used with a connotative meaning, you're not. Okay. <laughs> because if Paul is saying you're just a baby, that's one thing. But if he's saying yeah, you, you should be mature by now, but you're just acting like a baby, mm-hmm. yeah, then that's it's different. So. Yeah. There, there's an important interpretive issue. Yeah, I think you could say that, that you can act carnal and still be spiritual, a spiritual man. Spiritually mature. Spiritually mature, but right. you can act carnal. You can act spiritually and still be a carnal man. You're right. I think a lot of it has to do with your time and grade and, and, and how far you have grown, what characterizes your life. Is right. it spirituality or is it walking, walking in the flesh or is it walking in the spirit? I think that's right. All right. Time's up. Thank you very much, Dr. Baker. We'll take a um, 25-minute break, and then we will come back for a very important session related to talking about uh, Chafer Seminary. So we look forward to having all of you.